Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Freelance garden historian Russell Bowes looks at the hidden meanings in flowers and asks whether there's a deeper significance. Um, any art gallery devotees in the audience? A few, yes. Um, sometimes a painting is just a painting. Um, sometimes it is a coded message to the person that it was painted for or their friends. Sometimes you can examine a painting and take it to bits and by focusing on an individual detail learn far more than is immediately apparent than from just the surface of the paint within the frame. Um, artists throughout the centuries have used symbols, both animate and inanimate, to um, add layers of meaning to their, uh, to their paintings. Um, in early Christian paintings, a single candle represents the all-seeing eye of God, where um, a pair of slippers underneath the bed or a chair represents domesticity and homely values. A dog represents fidelity. Flowers and plants can also um, be messengers. Um, they can convey specific meanings um, and give us particular information which is not readily apparent on first glance. Many flowers, such as the lily, have been associated throughout um, Western art with purity, for instance. Um, the tulip in 17th century portraits uh, was initially a mark of um, incredible financial wealth after the collapse of the tulip market in the late 1630s. A tulip was considered to be representation of vanity and <coughs> earthly folly. So what we're going to do over the next hour is look at two iconic flowers of the summer, although summer doesn't seem quite to have arrived outside our doors yet, the rose and the sunflower. Um, the Queen of the Garden, the Rose, a um, 19th century picture, depicted, a volume depicting flowers in animate form called Les Fleurs Animées. The undisputed Queen of the Garden, the Rose, is the nation's favourite flower. It's a symbol of luxury, secrecy and seduction, and above all, of a beauty so abundant that it can be careless of itself without any sense of waste. It's the national emblem of England a symbol of royalty, um, a token of romance, and in art you find the rose everywhere. It appears on fabrics, on wallpaper, on ceramics, carvings, and of course in paintings. And the rose has inspired artists across the centuries, appearing back in wall paintings back as far as 2000 years BC. The ancient Greeks believed that the rose was originally a white flower which had turned red when the goddess Aphrodite, goddess of sexual love, chased after her lover Adonis. In her haste to reach him, she fell and tried to catch at a plant for support. The thorns of the plant stuck into her flesh and the blood dripped upon the flowers below. The word rose itself comes from the Greek word rhodo, which means red in the ancient Greek language and which, I have to add, has nothing to do with the rhododendron, apart from, confusingly, the fact that the word rhododendron translates from the Greek as tree of roses. The study of roses is called rhodology. The study of rhododendrons is not surprisingly called rhododendronology. Um, the earliest cultivated roses were certainly crimson. Um, the, ro the red rose has proverbial sexual connotations and was originally apparently associated with same-sex intimacy. The red rose was in ancient Greece a token between male lovers. But it was the Romans who really made the rose their own in paintings. By turning Aphrodite into their goddess Venus, they become a symbol of love and earthly beauty. And in Botticelli's painting, The Birth of Venus, roses fall through the air in showers of delight as the goddess of sexual love rises from the sea. 
Cupid, Aphrodite's son, in um, Roman mythology, offers a single red rose to Harpocrates, the god of silence, in order to persuade him to keep quiet about his mother's amorous escapades. And this turns the rose in art into a symbol of secrecy. And the ceilings of Roman dining rooms were decorated with carved roses, reminding guests to keep things secret that they may have heard discussed over dinner. And to this day, the Latin phrase sub rosa, literally meaning under the rose, is a legal term meaning in complete confidence. The idea of secrecy may have been one of the reasons why Tintoretto has the biblical Susanna take her infamous bath screened from the elders by a a rose bush in his painting of 1560. Roses were given to people as tokens of great respect and honour after military campaigns. Chaplets were specially woven for generals um, who would parade in triumph through the streets of Rome with rose petals strewn in their path. And everybody would understand the symbolism and the respect due to somebody thus honoured with the rose. The ancient Romans were almost obsessed with the rose. The water in public baths was steeped in them, and in amphitheatres the rich, the famous, sat under vast awnings which were perfumed with rose water. Rose petals were used as pillow and cushion stuffings, and the flowers adorned rich women's hair. People ate rose-flavoured puddings, and their love potions and their aphrodisiacs all contained attar of roses. The bacchanalia, which was Rome's official orgy, was decorated with an abundance, almost an excess, of roses. So it's not difficult to see why the rose became an emblem of luxury, and towards the end of the Roman Empire, um, luxuriousness and licentiousness. Um, this painting here is the Roses of Heliogabalus, which was painted by Sir Lawrence Almutadema in 1888. Heliogabalus was um, a late Roman emperor, and this painting depicts a banquet to which he invites many of his enemies under the guise of friendship. The picture depicts the moment at the feast when a canopy high above the dining room is released and an avalanche of rose petals descends on the guests below, filling the air and eventually suffocating his enemies to death. Um, The banquet is said to have taken place at a time when the empire was very much in decline under the weight of conspicuous consumption, absolute luxury, immorality and licentiousness. Rome was almost on its knees and in the last throes of its greatness as an empire, but its richest and most exalted inhabitants parted on, uncaring and unheeding. As the guests at the banquet are eventually overwhelmed by rose petals, so viewers of the painting um, were initially overwhelmed by Alma Tadema's technical brilliance. Each of the roses in the painting were um, copied from the life. As it was painted during the long, cold um, winter of 1888, Sir Lawrence Alma arranged to have roses flown in weekly um, from the French Riviera for four months on a daily basis to ensure the accuracy, um, the botanical accuracy of each petal, leaving himself open to charges of conspicuous consumption himself. Um, After the fall of the Roman Empire, Benedictine monks continued the cultivation of the rose in the West, and as the excesses of the Romans were forgotten, the flower became um, an emblem of Christianity, even though the official Christian church was initially reluctant to consider it a religious symbol because of its Roman association with decadence. In an echo of the Aphrodite story and the accident with the white rose bush, apparently the blood of the crucified Christ spilt down from the cross 
um, onto a white rose bush, which bore red flowers ever after. The goddess of um, sexual love, um, Aphrodite, transmuted in early Christian theology into a pure demigoddess, the Virgin Mary. And in this detail of Martin Schongauer's 1473 painting, The Madonna of the Rosebush, the Mother of Christ sits enthroned with red roses, which symbolise the suffering of the Christ child. A single white rose Um, to her side is emblematic of her absolute purity. Now, at this point in um, the history of art, flowers are becoming an essential symbolic link between ideas. The kind of floral decoration that you would normally see around the edges of a medieval manuscript start almost literally creeping towards the centre of the paintings, taking on a new and important role within them. It wasn't only in Christianity that the rose was becoming a um, potent symbol. In the Islam, in enclosed gardens from the Alhambra to Kashmir, the rose was celebrated as a symbol for life itself. Its beauty representing the perfection that we should all strive for, its thorns depicting the difficulties we all come across while striving for that perfection, and the recurrent blooming showing showing us that our efforts to achieve this perfection should be continuous, with the flower eventually confirming to us that in the end we will all succeed. Rosewater went into the water of temples, into sherbets and pastries, and it was also used to perfume clothes and sprinkled on guests as they arrived at your home as a mark of honour and respect. When the Christian crusaders arrived in the Middle East, they too fell under the spell of this beautiful flower and returned back home to Europe with attar of roses in their saddlebags. Attar of roses is scented oil which became instantly fashionable in medieval Europe. It suggested all the seductive pleasures of the exotic and forbidden East. For the knights coming back um, into battle-scarred Europe, where mouths went unfed and disease decimated the population, the exotic, sensuous gardens of the East must have been truly mind-blowing. Serious attempts at recreating these luxurious gardens were made. According to the story recounted in Shakespeare's Henry VIII Part I. It was in the Temple Gardens on the north bank of the Thames that one of the defining moments in British history took place, seen here in a painting by Henry Arthur Payne. The two claimants to the English throne, the Earl of Somerset on the left from the House of Lancaster and Richard Plantagenet, the Duke of York, are seen challenging each other in the Temple Gardens in the Strand respectively picking the white and red roses as the badges of their competing factions. What later became known to history as the Wars of the Roses had begun. When Henry V came to power at the end of the Wars of the Roses in 1485, he married the warring factions, quite literally, by combining their rose, red and white roses to create the two-toned Tudor rose, which was come to be the symbol of his reign, and is still a symbol, symbol of Old England with the white rose of York superimposed on the Red Rose of Lancaster. The Red Rose of Lancaster is thought to be Rosa Gallica Officinalis for those botanically-minded members of the audience. Opinions vary as to what um, breed the white rose is. The general consensus is that it is Rosa Alba Semiplana, which is the semi-double white rose. Because of our royal connection... Let me focus that slightly... Our royal connections with the flower, the English have always laid claim to being the great rose growers of the world. But in fact, France has the greater claim to be the supreme rose-growing country of the world. It was the Empress Josephine, seen here in a painting of um, 1810 called The Rose of Malmaison, who bequeathed to modern Europeans the contemporary obsession with collecting roses. 
Born in Trinidad, her baptismal name was Marie Josepha Rose, and her family always knew her by the diminutive of Rose. Her ambition when she was crowned Empress of France in 1804 was to establish a rose garden which contained all the known varieties of rose in the world. In that, she unfortunately never succeeded, but at her principal official residence, the Chateau de Malmaison, outside Paris, she established the largest collection of cultivated roses ever assembled. Until the Empress Josephine had the idea, nobody else seems to have hit upon the notion of creating a garden or at least part of a garden, entirely for roses. Our obsession with the rose garden dates back to the Empress Josephine. The the craze in the um, early 18th century for new and exotic species of rose sent explorers scouring the world. The great discovery of this period was the tea rose in China. The name tea tea rose allegedly arises from the fact that the dormant plants were shipped back to Europe in the holds of ships protected by tea chests. They first arrived in Europe in 1810, but unlike the existing roses from Europe and the Middle East, they were repeat flowering rather than only having one single flush. Empress Josephine used her position and her influence as the Empress of France to make sure that she got the best of the bunch. France and England were at war both on land and sea at the time, but the roses were of such political significance that it was arranged between the French and the English navies that any ships bearing roses back to the Empress's garden at Malmaison would have safe passage. The desire to record the Empress Josephine's many different varieties of roses became the obsession of her court painter, a young Belgian artist named Pierre-Joseph Redoute. She was, he was artist-in-residence at Melmaison. And I haven't actually got a picture of Redoute's roses, but they will be vastly familiar to absolutely everybody because they are the standard botanical illustrations on you know, birthday cards and calendars and chocolate boxes and things like that. Um, as such, they have become rather devalued. Um, we're used to giving Redoute's images of roses, just a cursory glance. Um, But as a painter of roses, his importance cannot really be underestimated. In in his um, intensely accurate botanical drawings, um, the classical tradition of painting roses comes fully alive. The legacy of Redoute's um, passion for the rose can clearly be seen in the flower portraits of Henri Fontaine Latour, who is perhaps the 19th century master of still life rose painting. His very famous painting, Roses and Larkspur, at the Hunterian Gallery in Glasgow, is a clear example of his incredible skill in still life. But very early on in its life, the painting was actually cut in half horizontally, so the image of the roses and the larkspur could actually be sold separately as two separate paintings. It was a Glasgow art dealer in the early 1920s who discovered the origin of the two paintings at the time, reuniting them as Fantin Latour intended. If you look closely enough, you can actually just still see the join there. Um, In the National Gallery of Edinburgh um, is this wonderful, cool, grey and pink painting by Fantin Latour's wife, Victoria Duberg, who was in her own right an extremely accomplished artist. Together they um, were contemporaries of the Impressionists and exhibited alongside such artists as Manet and Cezanne. They used a very similar technique to the um, the Impressionists, using a short loaded brush, loaded with paint and very, very short and quick brush strokes. Um, And they were, like the Impressionists, intensely concerned with capturing the effects of the fleeting qualities of light. Um, Fantin Latour and Duberg were renowned as being the ro- most romantic couple in Paris. 
Um, perhaps a life spent in very close proximity to the roses was the subject of their, uh, the secret of their successful marriage. There are about 120 different individual species of rose in the wild, all from the northern hemisphere. Um, Gardeners have derived from these some very complex hybrids, some of them quite ancient. But the roses all have exactly the same botanical structure. (coughs) Excuse me. They have five petals in their original state. Um, Sorry, five sepals, which are modified petals. You can see the five sepals at the base of the flower there. Two of which are bearded on one side with the little outgrowths. It's that one there and that one there. Um, at the, uh, the, the other two aren't bearded at all and the other um, sepal is bearded on one side only. At the base of the rose flower is the hip, which is the receptacle containing the ovary in which the seeds form. And then the petals come, obviously, on top, which are the main point of interest for garden connoisseurs. In the wild species, there are usually five petals only, single flowers, but obviously modern cultivars have been bred for um, double or even triple um, uh, um, petal flowers. They're often very formally shaped, and in the centifolia um, subspecies, there are you know at least eighty to ninety petals all packed onto one single bloom. Now there are a, a number of essential oils which give. Um, each flower its unique scent. What makes the rose so alluring to our sense of smell is the unromantically named chemical phenethalamine, which is a chemical substance found in fresh roses which gives them their distinctive scent. It contains an amino acid which is known to slow down the breakdown of endomorphins, which give us um, the strange and indefinable sense of being happy. An extreme dose of phenethalamine, um, perhaps delivered directly to the brain via the scent of a dozen red roses delivered by the florist, gives us the natural and long-lasting chemical high which human beings refer to as being in love. Um, However, phenethalamine has also been cited as a contributing factor in the triggering of migraines. So perhaps not tonight, Josephine. I am the ghost of the rose that you wore last night at the ball. You took me when I was still sprinkled with pearls of silvery tears from the watering can, and among the sparkling festivities you carried me the entire night. O you who caused my death without the power to chase it away, you will be visited each night by my ghost which will dance at your bedside. But fear nothing. I demand neither mass nor de profundis, This mild perfume is my very soul, and I've come here from paradise. Michael Falkin's short ballet La Spectre de la Rose was based on a short story written in 1837 by Theophile Gautier. It was premiered by the Ballet Russe Company in 1911 with the legendary dancer Václav Nijinsky in the title role as La Spectre de la Rose. It is an essentially plotless ballet um, which portrays a young girl smelling a red rose which she has been given um, at her first ball. She then falls asleep and dreams of the evening which has just passed. The smell of the rose is personified in the ballet by La Spectre or the Spirit of the Rose which leaps through the window and proceeds to dance with her. When the smell of the rose finally fades, the spirit fades away also and the girl wakes next morning to a completely empty room, uh, finding only a scattering of dead rose petals on the floor. Now, Nijinsky's costume costume for this ballet was designed by Leon Baxt, who was the famous Russian artist and costume designer. He took infinite care with Nijinsky's costume. Um, Each silk rose petal was individually cut and sewn onto a close and tight-fitting body stocking made of silk elastic. The petals were, as I said, cut from pure silk of many different shades, and they were curled individually with hot tongs before each performance. 
Um, the Rose was Nijinsky's most famous and most celebrated role. His final leap at the end of the ballet, out through the French window, caused an immediate sensation in the ballet world, such that his other qualities as a dancer were practically forgotten. Rather like the sweet perfume that he was portraying, Nijinsky found it almost impossible to escape from L'Aspect de la Rose. In the 19th century, the Victorians also succumbed to the charms of the rose, but the flower took on a much more innocent and virtuous quality. It was not considered anymore to be exotic and forbidden, but it was the symbol of love and was celebrated in beautiful prose and poetry and in paintings. The rose became the symbol of romance with its combination of scent and fragile beauty. This is a portrait of the actress Lily Langtry, who was one of the most famous Victorian actresses. And in this portrait, she holds a small yellow rose close to her breast very tenderly. The other rose, the small white one, is rather carelessly held down in her other hand. It isn't actually dropping, but the significance to her um, is obviously not the same as the larger yellow rose she is holding, one feels. The yellow rose in the complex and complicated Victorian language of flowers represents adultery and jealous love. And in this picture, the yellow rose represents Lily's adulterous love for the Prince of Wales, Edward VII. Um, the white rose at the bottom of the picture represents her legal union with her husband. She leaves us in very little doubt as to which of the two men is the more significant in her life. As his name suggests, the Victorian painter Dante Gabriel Rossetti was, um, had a particular relationship with the rose. He was completely fascinated by the flower and its imagery and its associations. He was completely obsessed with the Victorian language of flowers, which I mentioned earlier, in which individual blooms carried particular messages, and he liked to incorporate these um, into his paintings. Whatever the actual subject of his paintings was, he seems to be constantly painting the story of his own love affairs. Um, in his work, words, love is a constant, um, almost um, sexual symbol. Now, the Victorian ideal of beauty was of a rather demure kind, but Rossetti broke through that basing his ideal women on the features of various women that he knew and associated with, shall we say. Um, the painting called Venus Verticordia can be seen in the Russell Coates Art Gallery in Bournemouth, and it's one of Rossetti's many paintings in which flowers play a very dominant part. In the, in the, the background, roses seem to be almost spilling out of the canvas in a pink wave, almost as if they are being offered to the model, who is called Alexis Wilding, as a kind of symbol of Rossetti's abstracted love for her. Rossetti's whole view of love was that it was a rather kind of doom-laden affair um, from start to finish. From, for him, the rose was a very complex and personal symbol, and it's a flower of ex both extraordinary beauty, um, as is love, and like love, it is something which carries thorns that can bring extreme pain. Um, this is... Um, um, reflected in the painting's title, which translates as Venus, Turner of Hearts, the sensuous figure who turns men away from fidelity by piercing their hearts with the golden arrow of love. Now, the butterflies which are settling on Venus's arrow represent the human soul in flight, and the twining honeysuckle at the front of the painting gives the idea that love can entrap you in its tendrils and refuse to let you go. The apple is one of the golden apples of the Hesperides, um, which Paris um, was awarded in return for um, the love of Helen of Troy. Queen Helen, however, was already married to King Menelaus of Sparta and unable to resist the love spell cast by Venus's golden arrow, the couple elope, an action which eventually brings on the fall of Troy itself. So it was a very doom-laden affair indeed. 
Rossetti himself was nearly bankrupted while painting Venus Verticoria, borrowing large sums of money in order to buy the roses from his local markets on a daily basis, rejecting any offered to him that he felt were not of sufficient quality or at the right stage of bloom um, necessary to be included in the background of the painting. So just like Sir Lawrence Alma-Tadema, he was another man brought to near disaster by the beguiling beauty of the Queen of the Garden herself. Moving on to um, our second flower, carrying its sun-like flowers high over the other plants in the border, just as the sun itself carries itself through the clear summer sky, it's not surprising that the sunflower has been used in art as a symbol of vitality, life and radiant blazing energy. As it grows, it turns and faces the sun and becomes the symbol of the ardent lover, the faithful husband, the loyal courtier, and the pious soul. Now, you're all expecting me to put up a slide of the Van Gogh sunflowers at this point, I would imagine, but we're going to start slightly earlier in the story. This is Paul Gauguin's 1888 painting called Van Gogh Painting the Sunflowers. As I said, we were all expecting perhaps the Van Gogh sunflowers in the vase, which is perhaps the most iconic representation of the sunflower in the history of Western art. The 14 flower heads in the vase, some already past their prime, were painted um, in a very short period during the summer and early autumn of 1888, while Van Gogh was living in Arles in southern France. He was preparing for a long stay, a long visit by his friend Gauguin, with whom he planned to start an artistic community down there in France. Rather like Monet's series of waterlily paintings, Van Gogh originally considered Received a series of several paintings, in fact I think there were 14 by the end, with different numbers of the individual sunflowers, which came to represent um, the optimism that Van Gogh was feeling as he produced some of the best works of his artistic life. Now, long before the sunflower reached European shores, civilizations such as the Incas of South America had made the flower a symbol of their own sun god. From the petals, they produced a strong yellow dye, and from the seeds, they created a powerful colour pigment, which they used to paint the head of the sunflower on their bodies, essentially capturing the energy of the sun into themselves. In Peru, the flower was very much revered by the Aztecs, and in the temples of the sun, the priests were crowned with garlands of golden sunflowers, which they carried on their hands during the rituals. The Spanish conquistadors found numerous representations of the sunflower in the Aztec temples, lavishly wrought of pure gold, which, of course, they then plundered and brought back with them to Europe, along with seeds and specimens of the flower itself. Um, With them came other botanical treasures such as the tomato, the potato and the cocoa bean. The first sunflower to blossom on European soil bloomed in the Royal Botanic Gardens in Madrid in 1510. But although it was a prized botanical novelty from the New World, the flower's nutritional and medicinal properties were as yet still undiscovered by modern Europeans. It was initially seen as a very rare and fantastic flower, but in, uh, within a century it was to become uh, familiar features in gardens right across the continent and acquiring a symbolism that fascinated the creative mind. When Van Dyck painted his famous self-portrait with sunflower in 1633, he was celebrating his appointment as court artist to Charles I. Richly cloaked in um, crimson satin, he clutches his magnificent badge of office um, tightly in one hand and points with the other to the colossal sunflower as a symbol of royal patronage, demonstrating both his loyalty and dependence upon the king. At the height 
of his career and celebrating his official arrival at court, um, Van Gogh, Van Gogh, Van Dyck um, poses uh, symbolizes the re- the connection between um, the subject and the monarch. The way in which the sunflower turns towards the sun mirrors the way in which Van Dyck's career was dependent on the king's favor and patronage. It wasn't the only time that Van Dyck used the sunflower in his paintings. In this painting in the National Maritime Museum collection called Portrait of Sir Kenelm Digby, um, the flower carries a completely different set of connotations. Sir Kenelm was a close personal friend of Van Dyck and the sunflower in this picture is a much darker presence than in the self-portrait we just looked at. Um, Digby fell in love when he was very young with his childhood sweetheart, Venetia Stanley. They married in 1625 and made a very handsome couple. He was exceptionally good-looking and she was known as one of the great beauties of England. They were wealthy, they were popular and they held a very popular, a very favourable position at court. It was a brilliant match on both sides, but unfortunately a very short-lived one. Phoenicia died in 1633, only eight years after their marriage, and coincidentally the same year as Van Dyck painted his self-portrait. Rumours abounded in the court at the time that Sir Kenelm had actually poisoned his wife accidentally, or that she'd overdosed herself with um, something called viper wine, which, um, according to different reports, Digby made his wife drink to preserve her astonishing beauty, or with which she dosed herself to ward off what may have been migraine headaches. Both were devout Catholics at the time of their marriage, but much against his wife's pleading. Digby had actually renounced his faith and converted to the Church of England in order to further his career and their lives at a court in which Catholicism was regarded with increased suspicion and mistrust. And in 1635, to show his devotion to the memory of his dead wife, Sir Kenelm took the difficult decision to revert back to the Catholic faith, which of course raised immediate problems at court um, as regards his loyalty to the Protestant King Charles I. That question was very much answered in this painting by the inclusion of the sunflower symbol of loyalty to the crown. And it's possible to read many different layers of symbolism into this portrait. Um, On the face of it, it just shows a man still deep in mourning for his dead wife, but also proves his continued loyalty to the crown, despite having had to make an incredibly difficult decision which he knew full well would not be popular with the king. On a deeper level, the dying sunflower might even represent Phoenicia herself, while the entire portrait signifies Digby's fidelity, even in death, to her memory and the beliefs that they shared. On to the next picture, which is rather dark, unfortunately, by Franz van Mieris, painted in 1663, A Boy Blowing Bubbles. Um, Because flowers only last a few short weeks, or even in some cases days, they've often been used in art as symbols of the transience of youth and beauty, or even the transience of life itself. In this painting celebrating the exuberance of youth, um, it's, it's the exuberance that is represented by the small sunflower on the windowsill, complemented by the young boy blowing the soap bubble out of the window. Youth, the painting says, is short-lived and like the soap bubble and the flower will soon disappear forever. Um, This was created in 1663 at the height of the new Protestant Republic of the Netherlands, a period in which many paintings become loaded with horticultural symbolism. You might just be able to see right at the bottom there a tiny snail is crawling over the date of the painting which is carved into the window ledge. And people were reminded by tiny details like this that in everyday life we can still be in the midst of death. But ironically in what might be a rather gloomy sentimental painting the sunflower shines out as a symbol of the actuality of life, the effervescence of life itself. 
It shows the fleeting moment before the beauty and glory of life is lost, just like the soap bubble. The, um, the sunflower, however, tells us that when the soap bubble bursts, life does still carry on. The Dutch painter Jacob Maris, who was working in France in the mid-1870s, painted this picture in 1867, a girl seated outside a house, showing a young peasant girl sitting trimming her hat with convolvulus or bindweed flowers. Beyond is the village of Montigny-sur-Loire, and in the distance across the fields is the city of Paris. Now, the girl is obviously not very rich and not having a very happy time of it. Even the convolvulus flowers on her hat represent the fact that her life is already something of a tangle. And yet the sunflowers blooming in the field outside suggest that ultimately she will have a happier life. It's very interesting to think that Van Gogh's sunflowers and this painting are almost exact contemporaries with each other, and yet you cannot imagine two more different depictions of the sunflower itself. It was the 18th century Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus who gave the sunflower its botanical name, um, Helianthos, from Helios, the Greek god of the sun, and anthos meaning flower. And it was a Greek myth which inspired this work by George Frederick Watts, which now hangs in the George Frederick Watts Gallery in Compton in Surrey. When the sun god Helios rejected the love of the nymph Clytie, she um, descended into despair couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, and accepted no comfort. To comfort in her in her grief, the god Helios turned the unhappy nymph into a flower, and her devotion to him is still constantly displayed as the flower that she became still turns eternally towards the sunshine. You get the impression that Watts actually really enjoyed painting this um, picture. It's all about beauty and longing rather than sadness and rejection. Um, it focuses more on the neck and the shoulders of the nymph Clytie rather than her face. Um, and there's a wonderful twist to her neck as she um, strains to catch a last glimpse glimpse of the sun disappearing into the top left-hand corner. Um, the nymph's shoulders and her head are trapped in a ring of radiating blossoms and dark green leaves as she becomes a slave to her all-unrequiting desire. Of course, there's a certain irony to all this in that the ancient Greeks didn't know the sunflower at all, it being a new world plant. Um, the story has, over the succeeding um, generations, become corrupted. Clytie was probably actually turned into a heliotrope rather than a sunflower, Helios again being the god of the sun, and trope from the Greek tropin, meaning to follow or to pursue. So heliotrope literally meaning to pursue the track of the sun, which the plant itself does. But it's the heliotrope leaves which orientate themselves to the sun rather than the, the petals of the flower, which probably wouldn't make such a good picture, I would imagine. When you look closely at the head of the sunflower, you can see that it's actually made up of many hundreds of individual flowers formed into a composite head. Um, the family that the sunflower belongs to is the compositae or composition um, or the daisy family. So the tiny white daisy that you see on the grass and the enormous sunflower towering over it are actually distant cousins. Both flowers are constructed in exactly the same way. In the centre of what is botanically known the inflorescence, you have these little individual flowers, um, which are called disc florets, each um, carrying five individual tiny petals on the top. Each floret, as they're called, is orientated to the one next to it by exactly the same mathematical angle, which produces um, a pattern of spirals, um, one going clockwise and the other one going anti-clockwise. Um, the number of spirals is always constant. In small flowers, small compositae flowers, um, small sunflowers, there are 34 clockwise spirals and 55 
anti-clockwise spirals. When the sunflower gets larger, the numbers increase to 89 spirals clockwise and 144 anti-clockwise. Now, the numbers 34, 55, 89 and 144, do we have any mathematicians in the room? They're numbers in the mathematical sequence called the Fibonacci sequence, the mathematical progression which you get by starting at 1 and adding it to the previous number in the series. So you have 0, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, 55, 89, and 144. The last four numbers in that sequence are always the numbers of concentric spirals in a flower head. I think I might have lost some of you there. I know it's gone, it went completely over my head the first time I read it. Um, the showy part of what we call the flower of the sunflower um, is composed of what are called ray florets. They're much larger individual flowers on the outside of the florets. They don't set seed. They're, they're completely sterile. And you can see that each one um, has an individual, what we call petal, um, hanging onto it, which is actually the five individual petals of the inner flowers all fused together and turned into one. Um, there are about um, 70 known varieties of sunflowers, more than a dozen annual species, as well as some ornamental perennials. Um, but once the sunflower had lost its status as a rare exotic introduction to Europe, it very much fell from, fa from fashion. It was downgraded almost to become a cottage garden plant and in the 19th century was seen as just too rustic and too simple for elegant and fashionable gardens. It became valued principally as an oil seed crop, particularly in Russia, where the many oils and fats were forbidden during the fasting period of Lent. Um, until Oscar Wilde and Van Gogh, in very different ways, gave the sunflower aesthetic status. There is this well-known story about Oscar Wilde walking down Piccadilly with a sunflower in one hand and a Madonna lily in the other. He later denied it and said to have done it would have been nothing, but to make people believe that one had done it, that was the triumph. Now, the aesthetic movement regarded... Um, the sunflower as its emblem, and Wilde, who was the aesthetic movement's self-appointed apostle, explained in a lecture that aesthetes favoured the sunflower and the lily because of the gaudy leonine beauty of the one and the precious loveliness of the other. Wilde himself was caricatured as an enormous sunflower in this um, Punch cartoon in 1881. The fascinating thing about Oscar Wilde that he, is that he seemed to be one of the, these people who had a genius for picking up on something just before it became popular and making it into his own personal emblem. The closing decades of the 19th century were, were popularly known as the Yellow 90s, yellow being associated in the period with luxury and a certain amount of aesthetic decadence. Chrome yellow pigment was first developed during this period, and the artists of Europe went completely wild, no pun, um, about the colour itself. The painters and designers of the period were fascinated by the aesthetic properties and possibilities of the sunflower, its shape, its colour and its overall form. And the, the flower itself eventually became one of the great badges of the aesthetic movement. Sunflowers appeared in houses everywhere, in wallpapers, in tapestries and in household furnishings, such as these fire dogs designed by William Morris. Um, they are appropriate to the sunflower because of the flower's visual connection with the sun and therefore heat. Um, and what <clears throat> they were to balance the long um, formation logs of the fire in your domestic hearth across. The two languid young ladies in George Dunlop Leslie's Sun and Moonflowers from the Guildhall Gallery in the City of London declare their attachment to and their affiliation with the aesthetic movement um, 
um, in the subtlest of ways. Um, the main clues to their aestheticism are, of course, the sunflowers themselves, along with the night flowering cousins, the moonflowers um, at the bottom of the picture and which stand in a blue and white Japanese vase. And it's the blue and white colour scheme, um, which is another major clue to the aestheticism of the portraits. The girls, it is implied, represent the rarity and fragility of the Japanese porcelain. Shaded from the bright sunlight outside and thorny rose bushes, they sit poised in their aesthetic signature blue and white dresses. They are engaged in arranging the flowers but are somehow um, decorously distant and fashionably remote. The devotees of the aesthetic movement valued rarity over practicality and they attempted to live their lives in a kind of um, elevated artistic sensibility. Women often um, adopted a mode of artistic dress, disdaining the fashion for corset and bustle in favour of looser, more free-flowing and unstructured garments, muted in tone and often embroidered with flowers. With her husband Percy, Madeleine Wyndham collected contemporary art of the period and regularly held dinners in London and Wiltshire for um, leaders of the aesthetic movements. Many of the Wyndham's friends were major players in the aesthetic art movement and her distinctive dark green dinner gown, dark green dinner gown um, um, of green velvet ornamented with embroidered sunflowers is seen here in a preparatory sketch by George Frederick Watts who painted the picture of the nymph Clytie which we discussed earlier and you can clearly see the aesthetic sensibilities of Mrs Wyndham being displayed by the massive sunflowers. Now this is a preparatory sketch the original, the finished portrait, has always been in private hands, and as such, I couldn't um, find a copy of it um, to reproduce. I couldn't get um, copyright permission. But it's amazing what a little detective work can do in an art gallery. Um, you might be able to see if um, the um, if the lights weren't up, um, the portrait hanging in the back of John Singer Sargent's later paintings of the Wyndham's um, three glamorous daughters. Just as the aesthetic period faded away in England, the image of the sunflower was very much going to reach another zenith in France, where the warm light of Arles was set to inspire one of the most popular flower paintings of all time. In a letter to his brother Theo in the autumn of 1888, Vincent van Gogh described the paintings he hung in the rooms of his rented guest house in Arles. There are, he said, my great pictures of sunflowers, some 12 or 14 in each bunch, and they are crammed into this tiny boudoir with a pretty bed and everything else dainty. Van Gogh began his series of sunflower paintings that August 1888 and hoped to complete at least a dozen canvases before the summer ended and the sunflowers faded. And he wanted the flowers to blaze out um, in chrome yellow against a background of greens and greys and turquoises. He was very interested in the, very, in the way that contrasts um, appear and how colours don't necessarily always come together, but somehow sometimes make each other stand out. Um, in his Sunflower series, he was working on opposing um, hues um, and different ways of depicting the colour yellow. Each of his Sunflower paintings was done in practically you know, the space of a couple of hours, um, or just one or two sessions. He started by blocking in the colours um, and the areas of the bowls and then filled in the, the actual flower heads themselves later. And he painted with incredible, almost frenzied speed um, because he wanted to depict the sunflowers at their height of beauty. And in the most famous of the sunflower paintings, some flower heads are not yet ready. Some are just beginning to open. Some are fully in bloom and some are already starting to fade away. 
it's almost as if Van Gogh was trying to find a way of making sense of the world around him. So in the one painting, we have the whole cycle of birth, growth, death and renewal, just like the vast eternal circle that the sun itself marks across the heavens as it travels around this little blue and green planet that we call home. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you.